0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be on the air, and I hope all of you have had a good start to the week. Well, we're going to be um, doing uh, the first of a two-part series in terms of uh, podcast segments uh, with regards to what we're uh, discussing, uh, being the fire of his genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream, And I'm sure many of you are wondering why, all of a sudden, are we going to be doing a two-part series? Then again, we've already covered uh, seven episodes of this uh, book discussion that we uh, are doing. Uh, We're not completely done just yet, but um, we're not too terribly far from uh, reaching the uh, final climactic point. However, um, I can tell you this much, that um, we will be discussing... The years of um, the years from rather eighteen thirteen to eighteen fifteen. These are uh, significant years, uh, but then again, um, from the last podcast uh, this segment, uh, we learned uh, about the years of eighteen o seven to eighteen twelve. It seems like that uh, Fulton's uh, journey up to this point has been um, one that has been. Uh, very noteworthy, to say the least, of uh, learning about. I mean, we've learned of all of his highs and all of the lows that he has um, been through. Yes, he has experienced setbacks. Yes, he's been knocked down. And for all the times that he's uh, gotten knocked down, yes, he has gotten back up and continued to uh, pursue the fire of his genius. But I figured that it would be best to uh, do a two-segment um, segment, um two podcast uh, segment episodes from the time between 1813 to 1815, largely due in part because uh, it would be very hard to uh, cover it all in one uh, segment. And we will uh, be learning in these uh, next uh, two segments, including, uh, rather I should say, starting with the one tonight, and as well as the next time I'm on the air. These ne- next two segments will um, provide a great deal of... Um, highs and lows, but they will also reveal more about, um, about Fulton than we um, would have ever um, had anticipated. In other words, who really was Robert Fulton? I mean, we've known him as an inventor. Yes, we've learned that he got married, but we have to wonder to ourselves, what is Fulton really like behind closed doors? Some of us may already have an idea based upon the fact that uh, with that fire of his genius that has no boundaries, we might already have an indication of what he really could be like. What I do know is that um, we have a lot to learn, and by doing so, it's time to fasten our seatbelts and get the show on the road. Our first leadoff question is a very, very important one. But I think any lead-off question to a uh, podcast segment is important. This one, though, to me, is probably the most important. Who passed away on February the 25th, 1813? Is it someone that Robert Fulton knows? The answer is yes. Is it someone that Robert Fulton um, has ties to in the steamboat, Um, not just so much the steamboat industry, but has had ties to for quite an extensive period of time that might have helped make all of this uh, possible? Yes. Folks, uh, the man who passed away on February the 25th, 1813 was none other than um, Chancellor Robert Livingston. Yeah, can you believe that, folks? Uh, Chancellor Robert Livingston has passed away on February the 25th, 1813. He was a part of that uh, Committee of Five, um, along with uh, Roger Sherman, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, who helped um, write the Declaration of Independence. Of course, Jefferson was its chief author, but they all had a part in helping him um, make all the necessary revisions. After all, it took Jefferson about 86 revisions uh, just to get it right before that final copy was submitted to the greater body of the uh, Continental Congress in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on July the 2nd of 1776. And then, of course, um, the final motion was approved two days later to where we officially declared our separation from England. So that means, folks, that Robert Livingston's death in 1813, that basically means that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are the only two signers left from that committee of five um whom helped um, whom were instrumental in getting the Declaration of Independence introduced before the greater body of uh, Congress. And there and there are not very many uh, signers left at, in 1813 from that era of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I know that uh, Jefferson Adams and a mr. Charles Carroll might have been probably the only three uh, signers that I know of who might have still been living. Maybe George Clymer of Pennsylvania was uh, still, but it's a very small number to say the least. What did Robert Livingston die from? He sadly had a fatal stroke and he had been ill since uh, the summer of 1812. So this death just didn't happen overnight. Yes, he had been ill for a while, but it is fair to say, sadly, that the stroke he had, being a fatal one, was the um, was what ultimately got him. How old was Robert Livingston? Uh, he was he was sixty six years old, which for that day for that day in time was probably considered old age. It is um, important to note out that um, yes, Robert Fulton and Robert Livingston had. A decent relationship in terms of um, working together, but it was also one that was complicated, or rather, I should say, complex. Would it be fair to say that both Robert Livingston and Robert Fulton were uh, grand envisioners? Yes. They both had a grand envision for what um, a steamboat could do, not just uh, so much in getting uh, people from point A to point B, but Transporting uh, people to new destinations where the where population would be needed to ensure that America's borders, most notably the um, western or northwestern territories, aka Northwest Territory, would be um, would be populated with um, with people um, whom were living along the uh, coast of the th- original thirteen states, to where um, America's national security would be better enhanced. Uh, along its western frontiers to uh, having goods being transported uh, f- by, from uh, point A to point B via the use of steamboat in other words how can um, the various regions of America uh, function through means of commerce so yes both men were grand envisioners they wanted what was best for uh, the new nation but then again all of our forefathers wanted what was best for America. But for Fulton and Livingston, they were both men whom tried to do many uh, tasks on their own. They tried to do more on their own, say, without you know consulting one another or other uh, people within their inner circles. So in other words, Fulton and Livingston to me were like micromanagers trying to do everything on their own without going through a proper chain of uh, communication network command each man was fiercely independent but at the same time both men knew with, that without the other's support the dream of a steamboat operation service or just the steamboat itself could not have been achieved So in other words, both men knew that they did need to rely on each other at times, even though they were micromanagers, they were fiercely independent, they still had to rely on one another. So yes, their relationship was good, but it was also one that was complicated. But I think it's fair to say that even some of the most successful of businessmen uh, throughout America's history have not? Yes, they have been successful, but they have probably been uh, their own micromanagers at various times um, during their um, during the times for which they lived. Had there been any um, legal challenges made against the New York Waterway Monopoly prior to Robert Livingston's death, this is where I think it's going to get interesting, folks because I'm sure many of you are wondering, okay, Robert Livingston has this monopoly. He's had a monopoly for some time, but now that he's died, is it fair to say that over time that somehow his monopoly could get broken up? Well, to answer your question, as, and I'll mention it again, had there been any legal challenges made against New, the New York Waterway monopoly, prior to um, the Chancellor's death. The answer is yes. There were many uh, people who did challenge uh, this um, waterway monopoly. One of them just so happened to be Robert Livingston's brother-in-law named John Stevens. Uh, Robert Livingston's wife, uh, her maiden name was Stevens, so her brother nonetheless was John Stevens. We mentioned um, about Mr. John Stevens uh, sometime back early on from a much earlier uh, podcast segment, but uh, John Stevens was very um, instrumental in helping uh, his brother-in-law Robert Livingston not only get the monopoly, but just get um, something going um, in getting something started in terms of another boat along the Hudson uh, before Fulton's uh, North River steamboat got started, but um, John Stevens, in 1808, introduced a boat named the Phoenix, and it's spelled just the same way like Phoenix, Arizona, P-H-O-E-N-I-X. This was not a part of the um, Hudson River system in terms of uh, going from uh, New York to Albany and vice versa. John Stevens's boat, the Phoenix, was part of the New Brunswick, New York Ferry system. So, Technically, yes, it did go into New York. Now, I'm sure many of you are wondering, is New Brunswick a part of New York? It's not. What they're referring to here in terms of New Brunswick being uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is outside of uh, present-day Edison, New Jersey. And for those of you who are curious to know how Edison, New Jersey got its name, well, it's named after a famous inventor, the man who invented the light bulb, a.k.a. Thomas Edison, of course, I know I'm getting a little ahead of the game, but in case some of you are wondering about, you know, geography and where places are in relation from point A to point B of one another, uh, New Brunswick being outside of Edison is closer to uh, the New, New Jersey, New York uh, city line. So anyways, uh, Robert Stevens' boat being the Phoenix was part of this New Brunswick, New Jersey, New York ferry line. Stevens had been accused of replicating In another word for replicating means copying stevens had been accused of replicating the north river steamboat and who is accusing stevens none other than mr robert fulton fulton has become convinced that um that livingston's brother-in-law john stevens was deliberately violating the existing patent on record. You know, patent is like another term for copyright. You know, um, in other words, when a patent has been issued, that means it's um, it's something in writing that says, you know, so and so invented this I- item, and and they have uh, they might have uh, legal rights to it, given if the, uh, if if it's proven that they were the first to do so in inventing the um, device. But isn't it fair to say, though, that there were other people who we learned about early on that tried to that also came up with their own version of a steamboat? Yes. And is it fair to say that Fulton is fighting the system left and right to prove that he was the first before everyone else? Yes. Come December of 1809, Robert Fulton Robert Livingston, of course, we we got a forward four years back, and Robert Stevens all went to court. And a settlement was reached where the courts ruled, or the judge presiding over the matter ruled that the three men would agree to equally divide up the steamboat rights. And it wasn't involving just one Eastern River Waterway, but it involved various Eastern River Waterways, so not just the Hudson or the North River Steamboat Service going from New York to Albany and back, but how about now um, the um, New Brunswick New York Ferry. There are probably some other ones associated with this, but now um, we could say that the first, this could be the first signs of an eventual breakup of, uh, Livingston's monopoly. Of course, in 1809, Livingston is still alive, but the fact that there was a settlement three and a half years before his death, where a judge ruled that, that all three men, being Fulton and Livingston partners, had to, um, come to an agreement with, um, Livingston's brother-in-law that they would all, um, agree to equally divide up the steamboat right, the steamboat rights. So in other words, we're gradually moving towards perhaps uh, something that we now know as uh, what we call regulation. Now, uh, it is fair to say that when Robert Livingston passed away, did Robert Fulton become all the more vulnerable to further legal challenges? Oh, the answer is yes. Robert Fulton, yes, had had connections with Robert Livingston. After all, he married Robert Livingston's cousin, which is, you know, which is not a bad thing. But at the same time, Robert Fulton is not doesn't come close to being a chancellor like Robert Livingston. Robert Livingston was born into privilege, whereas Robert Fulton wasn't. But it is fair to say that um, Robert Fulton did would not have had the same kind of connections in a state legislature like Robert Livingston did given that not only was he from New York, but he had direct ties to several individuals who represented um, New York State, uh, regardless of the uh, district that they were uh, representing. So yes, for uh, once Robert Livingston dies, um Robert Fulton becomes more vulnerable to further legal challenges considering largely due in part that so many other businessmen were beginning to see and realize just how profitable steam transportation was becoming long term. Hey, you know what, if I want to start a business in the steam in the transportation industry being steamboat I should have a right to um, operate. I should uh, to operate the business. I should be allowed to have a license. I should be allowed to have you know equal rights, even if it means dividing up those rights. Why should one person have the right? Why should one person be entitled to have a monopoly? Because if there if this monopoly is going to be allowed to remain in existence, then there's no such thing as free competition or what we think of as uh, free enterprise. the uh the patent laws at the time and it might still be the same way today but early on the patent laws the purpose of the patent laws was to protect all new new and original devices but there was nothing on the grounds in the patent laws during this time that Fulton was alive that um allowed for a reworking or a reconfiguration or rather, I should say, a modification of of a device that was already um, that had already been invented, or a device that um, not just had been invented, but um, an original device that had been on the blueprints or on the books, um, say, 30 years earlier. I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't know really much about patent laws, but I just know that uh, at this time, based upon what Kirkpatrick. Sale had mentioned in his book, The Fire of His Genius, that the purpose of protecting, um, that for the patent laws at the time, the the purpose was to protect the new and original devices without having anything pertain to reworkings or reconfiguration, or what we know as modifications. For Robert Fulton, he is a man that, he is a man of too much ego and hubris. Hubris, another word for hubris is pride arrogance. He would go about fighting the patent office tooth and nail against everyone standing in his way. (laughs) That doesn't come as a surprise. Now that Livingston is gone, yeah, everybody wants to take him on, and Fulton's not afraid to wage war against those whom are going to challenge him from all corners. Uh, The bigger question to me is is how many people are going to come to Fulton's defense. Fulton's uphill battles against the new lawsuits was taking a toll on him, both mentally and physically. You know, uh, by the time Robert Livingston dies, uh, Robert Fulton is in his late forties. But you know what? Age, ha- no matter how old one is, if they are in the midst of facing uphill battles like what Fulton is going through now, I could see how it would take a toll on someone like him, both mentally and physically. After all, you know Fulton is a man who loves to work, but yet he doesn't have any boundaries. That fire of his genius just keeps on going and going, like the Energizer Bunny. So for Robert Fulton, uh, I can give you an example here of something that had a um, deep impact on him physically. It got so bad that he endured a facial boil that over time led to blockage in one of his eyes. Is that not bad, folks? I think it is. Fulton also had um, weakened lungs that made him more vulnerable to frequent colds. And the more colds he had, folks, because of his uh, weakened lungs, it meant more time stuck stuck in bed. Think about it, folks. We don't have anything like Robitussin. We don't have any. Um, we don't have any cough syrup like we know today. However, we should keep in mind that there were medicines around back then, but they weren't the medicines that we know of that we can go into, say, like Walgreens and CVS and just pick up, um, like over-the-counter um, type medicines. Uh, I have to be reminded when I go to uh, Colonial Williamsburg and go into the apothecary shop that um, the only time you went to see a doctor was in the event it was a last resort when you had actually done everything else on your own to remedy or modify a situation and you came up on the short stick every other, all those other times. The last final resort was to go see a doctor. Although uh, Fulton did attend to his work, or his work duties, on a constant basis. I don't know how he managed to do all this, given that he probably was—he spent more time stuck in bed, but he still found a way to make work a top priority. So although Fulton did attend to his work duties on a constant basis, he was left with many great burdens, for which could not be fulfilled all by himself. And why could that be, folks? Well, Fulton, he's got a waterway in New York, from New York to Albany and back. Doesn't he have a waterway system in New Orleans? Yes. Is it fair to say that Fulton has stretched his empire to the point where, to where he has put so much burden on himself that at the same time, he has probably also burned bridges with people from various corners. Yes. And if he's burned bridges with with various people, why would they want to come work with him? They would have their reasons not to. And, you know, Fulton, he's only been married for a short period of time. He does have a family. So my next question to you all is going to be the following. Were Robert and Harriet Fulton a happily married couple? I wished I could say yes, folks, but the answer is no. Robert and Harriet Fulton were not a happy couple, but I don't really blame Harriet. I have to blame Robert. Harriet came to view her husband as someone whom lacked emotion, lacked compassion, and he didn't really have much of an attachment towards his wife, being Harriet, including their children. In other words, yes, it was one thing for a man like Fulton to be married, but even even back then, folks, it would have been important for a man, for man and woman, or husband and wife, I should say, to have compassion, to to have compassion, to have emotion, to have attachment. But we do have to be reminded that there were plenty of times, or just there were times even in 19th century America, where marriage was not perfect for people of high-end status. I mean, that marriage probably was not perfect at times, and yet people knew how to put on... um, put on different faces. And I'm mentioning this because in early 19th century America, women had no rights. I have to be reminded, folks, all of us should. You know, two years ago marked the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. And that wasn't something that just happened overnight. If you go to Seneca Falls, New York, you can visit a museum there that uh, honors uh, women like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, whom were the early pioneers behind uh, the women's rights uh, movement in uh, laying the foundations for getting, uh, for, with the objective in getting women um, the right to vote. But in early 19th century America, women had no rights, ranging from not being allowed to vote, not having an independent bank account couldn't sign contracts, couldn't carry life insurance, nor inherit her own property independently from her spouse being her husband. So for um, Harriet Fulton, she really has no say in anything. Yes, Robert Livingston, I mean, not Robert, Robert Livingston, but Robert Fulton married her largely because of who she was, a Livingston. Livingstons have money. Hey, guess what? I marry Harriet. She's she's got money. All that money becomes mine. And what am I going to do with that money? I'm going to invest it in all sorts of uh, projects with the hopes that Congress will uh, have a liking for my underwater mines, underwater naval mines, or that Congress will like my idea of of ships in general that can be used um, for an assortment of things. So in other words, Robert Fulton's not thinking about his family. All he's thinking about is himself, I, me, myself. There is no us, we, ourselves in the picture here. In 1814, uh, Fulton's fourth child arrived into the world. Robert Fulton, you know, we have to remember he was uh, an artist. He did a lot of um, what we call um, miniatures. or what we call portraits of uh, people. Well, Robert Fulton around this time painted a portrait of Harriet. (laughs) Was the portrait of Harriet a happy one or one of uncertainty? It was one of uncertainty. The portrait showed Harriet um, looking out into the horizon. No smile, just the look on her face was one of pure uncertainty. There was no warmth or love. But it wasn't towards the rest of the world, it was towards Robert, knowing that Robert only married her because of the money. Is it fair to say that even money alone doesn't buy happiness? How true it is. And more often than not, we, we get told that today. Is it fair to say that Robert Fulton was a man driven by uh, materials of his time? Yes. Is it fair to say, sadly, that there are a lot of people out there who are driven by materials in today's world? Yes. Of course, the level of accessibility was much different in Fulton's day compared to today's world. But the bottom line is is that there were uh, some similarities in Fulton's time in terms of being hunger-driven to chase the almighty dollar like some people do today. Did Robert Fulton manage to expand his steamboat operations prior to and after Robert Livingston's death? The answer is yes. Robert Fulton uh, constructed America's first dry dock facility. Uh, what is a dry dock facility, folks, or, or rather I should say the term dry dock? What it means is that um, whenever a boat goes into a dry dock, the boat is undergoing a routine, or what we call an annual maintenance inspection procedure, before going back out on the waters. Um, when a boat is in a dry dock, it could also mean that the boat itself is having new features being added on. So, for Robert Fulton, yes, um, he, is, he has found success in being able to expand his steamboat operations prior to and after Robert Livingston's death. He um, was able to see to it that, uh, well, he was able to oversee the building of uh, steam ferries of the York and Jersey boats for the New Jersey um, runs, or I should say, routes, as well as uh, the Nassau. The Nassau was a boat that um, went on what was called the Manhattan Brooklyn service route. So it is fair to say that Fulton has. He's had to adapt. He's had to adapt without any choice. But it is fair to say, though, that even though he has adapted, it's still about him. After all, you know, he wants to still be on top. Anybody else who's going to challenge him is still going to be considered a threat. Interesting enough, with uh, the Nassau, in May of 1814, the Nassau began Operation service. And the Nassau, believe it or not, folks, was doing 40 trips per day, 550 passengers. And how much do you think the trip alone would have cost this uh, service from Manhattan to Brooklyn and vice versa? Four cents a trip. Four cents is a lot of money back then. So, on average, Fulton was earning about $250,000 per season which was a a true uh, profitable enterprise for Fulton alone. Well, I think it's fair to say that any time Fulton himself can make money, he's happy. But it's also fair to say that when Fulton experiences anything that's in the red, or we know know of as a deficit, he is not um, the same person as he would be if everything was constantly in the green, meaning a surplus and that, hey... Money's going up. Profit's going up. Did Robert Fulton envision Steamboat travel along southern waters? Yes, but it didn't happen, largely because of Fulton's own personal undoings from a business standpoint. I think that's pretty self-explanatory because I think we've kind of mentioned some other things earlier about how he was a micromanager and how he um, was kind of one of the, it's fair to say that Fulton's one of those people that it's either his way or no one else's, But, but I would have to say that some of his own personal undoings might surprise you all here in that he didn't allow anyone to build a steamboat without his permission. Don't you find that a bit odd? Do you think that perhaps Fulton was afraid that if someone had built a steamboat um, without his permission, that they would try to find a way to perfect it ten times better than what what he himself, being Fulton, that is, had done uh, prior to? Yes, I think it's fair to say that Robert Fulton, to a degree, was a crab in a barrel. He couldn't stand to see others around him succeed who wanted to not only venture out on their own, but um, build their own steamboats and have a steamboat network. If Fulton, and, you know, I think that makes sense. if Fulton wasn't a crab in a barrel, then he would have been flexible much um, earlier in saying, "Hey, I don't need this monopoly, but I, I certainly welcome the um, free competition, the free enterprise. So, yes, Fulton doesn't allow anyone to build a steamboat without his permission. And Fulton's patent had to be upheld at all times, given that he believed he had sole rights to the waterway operations. So, in a nutshell, for Robert Fulton, it was either his way and nobody else's. He is a man, or rather I should say an individual, who needs to be in control. And without control for Robert Fulton, there, would, there wouldn't be that fire for, for a never-ending desire to attain, con- to attain uh, what we would call conquest or to attain any kind of conquering, um, because if Fulton doesn't conquer uh, something that is uh, within the confines of his genius, then he knows that, um, that not only has he missed an opportunity, but he knows that it will uh, haunt him to the point where it will drive him to do other to do things that, to many of us, would be unbecoming, until he finally gets what he wants. And then there again, at what cost does it come to? Now, uh, during this time, there has been a war. America is at war, rather, War of eighteen twelve. You know, America is um, fighting her. This is America's second war for independence. And many of you all who don't know a whole lot about the War of 1812, um, I can tell you this much for those of you who are new uh, to my podcasts. Um, back in 2020, I did a podcast uh, called Through the Perilous Fight, uh, From the Star-Spangled Banner um, to the Burning of Washington, From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner in the Six Weeks That Saved America, written by Steve Vogel. Uh, Basically, what the War of 1812 was about, it wasn't so much that, yes, I mean, America did declare war on England in 1812, but it was a war that had been coming for some time. Um, England had been um, wreaking havoc on American uh, vessels along the uh, waters of the Atlantic Ocean, and not just wreaking havoc, but the havoc was due largely to impressment where uh, British um, ships were uh, taking American ships uh, hostage and forcing soldiers, our soldiers, off of our own ships and uh, being forced into the ranks of the British against our own will, seizing our cargo without consent. In other words, you know, it's one, we may have won our independence on a battlefield, but from an economic standpoint, Britain was still sticking it to us to say, hey, look, we're the ones that reign supreme on the high waters. We will do whatever it takes to treat you, the Americans, inferior. So it wasn't just so much the impressment. Uh, another thing that uh, contributed to this war was uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, signing of the Embargo Act of 1807, in the very end of 1807, which uh, had a huge, profound impact on the uh, manufacturing and uh, mercantile um, economies of New England, and almost led to uh, secession. And of course, I know when we think of secession, we always think of the Civil War, but we should keep in mind, folks, that um, America was not any was no stranger to secession, even in her early days as a republic. So America is at war um, at, the, at the beginnings of the uh, second decade of the 19th century, and this does have an impact along along the Mississippi River. How so? Well, Robert Fulton has um, operations along the Mississippi River. So had this, had the war of 1812 um, hampered, operations along the Mississippi River? And the answer is yes. There were um, a couple of reasons for this. One of them, though, I think is the most important. It had to do with the British ships uh, blocking key port cities, most notably New Orleans. Most notably boat routes like uh, the New Orleans-Natchez route. It ran, it still ran regularly, but but that route's overall profits declined drastically because of the British presence along the Gulf Coast waters. In other words, it wasn't just so much the transporting of people from, say, New Orleans to Natchez and vice versa, but a lot of it also had to do with the over, overall flow of commerce. So think about it. If um, if commerce needs to get from point A to point B along um, along the Mississippi River, it's going to be deeply um, hampered by the presence of British vessels. Various other commercial vessels at this time uh, are experiencing internal issues, internal meaning um, structural problems from within, um, inside the vessels themselves. These internal issues resulted in uh, less profits for Fulton, basically meaning that these uh vessels spent more time in dry dock in other words they spent more time in dry dock being repaired and yes being fitted with new um, devices or just getting an upgrade but the bottom line is the longer these vessels were in dry dock the greater um the harder it became for fulton to get recouped and not to get uh what we call reimbursed or uh compensated for compensated for lost revenue and it wasn't just a one-time thing it was um, it it was more than once because per each time uh, a vessel was out of commission that meant that there would be revenue lost for every occasion might as well think to yourself gee uh, is Robert Fulton gonna go bankrupt uh, did the war of 1812 spur robert fulton in persuading government officials to use an assortment of weapons which he himself had devised yes fulton went as far as writing to the secretary of war requesting that his naval mines be used along the lake erie along lake erie or the canadian border of lake erie which had been the primary focal area during the war's first 2 years uh, most notably in September of 1813, when uh, Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry uh, had successfully, um, his um, U.S. naval forces had successfully defeated the British along uh, Lake Erie, meaning that all of Lake Erie was in America's hands. And of course, Commodore Perry was famous for saying, "Don't ever, um, don't ever give up the ship." So. Um, You know, Robert Fulton did get um, the okay from Congress to go about um, using uh, the torpedoes that he had um, devised. Of course, the torpedoes were referred to as the underwater naval mines. However, um, Congress pretty much allowed... Congress didn't say to Fulton that, you know, we will have you be on the ships to oversee the use of the... um, underwater naval mines, but the people who would be in, um, the people who would be running the show are going to be the privateers. I'm sure many of you are wondering why are people, why, why do we have this term called privateers? It has nothing to do with the three musketeers, I can promise you that much. Uh, private, privateers, or what we call privateering, pertains to, not just so much to private individuals, but private individuals who have been given the rights to carry out uh, missions, or what we call to carry out um, um, combat missions along the um, waters during a time of war where they would be allowed to attack enemy ships. In this case, during the War of 1812, it would have been uh, British ships along American waters where for every uh, enemy ship that was captured the value of those of the goods obtained along the enemy ships the the value of those goods would go straight to the privateers so in other words the privateers were collecting money they were they were being reimbursed for all, for every enemy uh ship that was sunk uh there was one man who uh served in the United States navy but he also did uh, privateering work, and he was a very, very respected, respectable man. Um, as a matter of fact, during the War of 1812, the British um, took him as a prisoner, but they treated him very humanely, unlike other regular um, lower-tier rank American uh, soldiers who were not treated humanely in, in prisons. Um, it wasn't so much because of their rank, but it was, in the eyes of the British, it was based upon how this one man courageously fought. His name was, um, I think his rank was a lieutenant, but, he was, um, but he, was, uh, a, he was either a lieutenant or a captain, and I do apologize that I don't know his rank, and I should have um, followed up on this, but, um, but his name was uh, Joshua Barney. Joshua Barney was probably one of the most successful privateers in the Chesapeake campaign of the uh, war of 1812 where he had um captured um over 20 uh british uh ships between 20 I think it was at least more than 20 or 30 ships that he um that he and his uh men were able to uh sink and not only just sink, but he basically took those ships out of commission and uh, was able to um, seize um, a hold of the, um, of the uh, British goods um, along um, aboard their ships, and their goods being not just goods for trading purposes, but um, it would have been those um, goods aboard the ships were for uh, warfare-related purposes. So basically privateering uh, allowed those um, individuals to carry out um, secret missions uh, approved of by the government where they would attack enemy ships along American waters, in this case being British ships, where um, the capture of each enemy ship resulted in the privateers or the privateer getting, um, the equal, um, um, in getting equal value of the goods uh, seized that went straight to their behalf. Now, Robert Fulton. I should point out that Robert Fulton saw more failure versus success with the torpedoes. One situation called for using torpedoes on British uh, vessels along the Delaware River's coast, given that British, given the British had been attacking settlements along the coast. But it turns out that a privateer. Um, a fellow privateer who knew Fulton uh, tipped off um, government officials from above and basically advised Fulton that they would not were to not go forward in attacking enemy ships, being uh, British ships along the coast. Uh, and why was that, folks? It turns out that on some of these enemy ships, intelligence was obtained that there were American prisoners on board. So. It's one thing to want to attack an enemy ship, but if you attack that ship and it turns out there are American uh, prisoners aboard, that just meant that, um, that the Americans have fueled the fire even more along the waters. Some tough, um, tough setbacks, to say the least. But the next part I'm going to talk to you all about right here is even more important. The summer of 1814 would prove to be very disastrous uh, for the Americans in this war. And you can learn more about it in the book Through the Perilous Fight that I did uh, two years ago um, with um, a a podcast that I had done um, two years ago. But uh, the summer of 1814, British forces kicked into full gear with their Chesapeake campaign. They returned um, back. And this time, it was, um, it was for real. Their mission was very plain and simple, to go straight after Washington. Washington, D.C. was a wilderness, but it was a wilderness that was not defended. In other words, the Madison administration was very naive. They did not think the British would uh, come and attack Washington. They did. So the British forces are uh, launching deadly attacks along various ports, Um, surrounding the Chesapeake Bay and all of its tributaries. And for those of you who aren't sure what tributaries are, they are bodies of water ranging from creeks, streams, and rivers that would eventually, that do flow into the Chesapeake Bay, uh, given that that is the largest uh, estuary on the East Coast. So the British are uh, launching these deadly attacks along the various ports uh, surrounding the bay and its uh, tributaries which results in which results in a major catas- a catastrophic raid on Washington DC August 24th this might as might as well be the equivalent of a 9/11 or a pearl harbor of its uh, of its of this time August 24th 1814 it would be fair to say that It would be a day that would live in infamy for this time. The British uh, burned the White House and the U.S. Capitol building. Of course, we do need to keep in mind that the U.S. Capitol in 1814 was not anywhere what it looks like today. And there weren't very many government buildings in D.C. at this time. But all of those buildings got burnt with the exception of one building, being the Patent Office building. Yes, Robert Fulton may have had a grand idea once again behind using torpedoes in a time of war, but sadly they were irrelevant. Whereas the one weapon of destruction for this time um, proved to be a difference maker, not on the side of the Americans, but on the side of the British. The uh, weapon that was used that achieved fame became known as the uh, Congrave Rockets. Um, Rocket artillery that was designed by a British inventor named Sir William Congrave, spelled C-O-N-G-R-E-V-E, in 1804. Ten years earlier, back when Thomas Jefferson was president. These rockets were used on both fronts, uh, land and sea battles by British forces. However, um, we've moved forward to a month later in September of 1814, the bombardment of Fort McHenry in Baltimore, Maryland. The Battle of Baltimore uh, was make it or break it for America, folks. If Baltimore falls into the hands of the British, we may not have a United States of America. America would more than likely return to uh, becoming a subject to the Crown. A fellow man by the name of Francis Scott Key was aboard a, a ship called the H.M.S. Tonnant, and um, I don't want to give a whole lot of this away because for those of you who are new to my podcast. Um, the book uh, through the perilous fight talks a great deal about how francis scott key um was persuaded to write what would become known as america's um star spangled banner america's national anthem but francis scott key did notice in the sky on the night of uh, september um on of the evening on an evening in september of 1814 uh, about three weeks after uh, the, the Capitol and the um, White House were burnt, along with other government buildings in uh, D.C., that um, Congreve rockets were launched into the air by the British. They were trying to uh, destroy Fort McHenry. And had the British captured Fort McHenry, um, that also would have meant a British flag flying high above in the sky. Well, these Congareve rockets were launched, they were launched into the air, and they had a red glare effect. This red glare effect would be added into um, America's Star Spangled Banner. Francis Scott Key added that phrase, the rocket's red glare, and of course after the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air the rockets red glare was it was in reference to those congrave rockets launched along the waters and not knowing what those rockets red glare would would do to fort mchenry and the outlying areas of baltimore but for francis scott key what his biggest worry was was that what would happen after night after nighttime what would happen come the next morning? Will that flag still be standing? Will there still be an America? Well, what do you know? The next morning, Francis Scott Key, as the story has it, peered out from the um, from the uh, from the ship with his telescope. He couldn't make out what was in front of him at first, but as the clouds um, disintegrated, he saw a high flag, a high, tall American flag still waving in the air. So through the night, through all the tumultuous uncertainty, through the perilous fight, not knowing if America would survive in the darkest of times, the flag was still there. Yes, the rocket's red glare might have uh, been visible, but it wasn't enough to to bring America down to its knees, although America was on the cusp of becoming a subject again to, um, to her one-time uh, former um, ruler and being England. Prior to Robert Livingston's passing, uh, what board commission did Robert Fulton get appointed to serve on? The Erie Canal Commission. Robert Fulton would go along to serve alongside noteworthy men from DeWitt Clinton, Governor Morris, Philip Schuyler, uh, to name a few. The purpose of the Erie Canal board was to, was to study and create a man-made waterway system route starting from Albany and ending in Buffalo, 360 mile route. And was Robert Fulton an ardent supporter behind canals in general? Absolutely. So therefore, he was an ardent supporter behind the Erie Canal and all that it stood for. Well, when I'm back on the air again next, we will be discussing part two of this uh, particular uh, time frame from 1813 to 1815. Many of you are wondering, okay, Robert Livingston has died in 1813. How old will Robert Fulton live to be? Will Robert Fulton be alive to see the Erie Canal become an actual um, dream or an actual reality? Will Robert Fulton be alive to see other great um, American, um, we call it technological or, or American revolutionary breakthroughs in terms of advanced progress in the movement of goods from point A to point B or just an overall movement of, um, of transportation itself. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I, uh, look forward to being back on the air, um, with you all next time and wherever you all may live in the world, uh, continue to remain safe. Take care.